Welcome back to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. Uh, in this episode, I will be looking at uh, the second section, the second part of A Half Century of Conflict by Francis Parkman. Um, so I introduced this book in the last episode, so you'll want to, to start there, I think, if you're just joining us. Um, so this, this book overall looks at Queen Anne's War and King George's War and the conflicts that raged across the continent between these two conflicts. Um, so uh, Queen Anne's War ends, what, 1712, 1713? Um, and King George's War is in the 1740s, and that's uh, the War of the Austrian Secession. Um, but the period in between was full of conflict, a lot of proxy wars, if you will. I, I think it's a, that's like a Cold War era phrase, but I think it applies. There was sort of a Cold War between England and France in the Americas, often fought with, with Indians. And as the French tried to solidify their position to make up for losses in Acadia and other places um, in Queen Anne's War, you saw a lot of the conflict shifting uh, to sort of proxy wars with the Indians and a lot of various Indian wars, uh, not so much against the Iroquois, um, who were kind of pushed into a position of neutrality under the governorship of, of Count Frontenac, but other Indian groups uh, like um, the Abenakis, the Foxes in the, out in like Wisconsin and Illinois. Um, you got uh, Sebastian Ralph, Father Ralph's War, Raleigh's War. So a lot of Indian conflicts are taking place. And so this episode and the next episode will kind of go over those events as described by, by Parkman. Um, so this will be a little bit of a shorter episode because I'm, um, you know, I'm just going to kind of hit on what he talks about in, these, in these, these chapters. But that's the big picture here is the war is over. The, the big war with England's over, but we kind of move to these these more proxy wars and the French trying to establish more of an empire in the in the far west, even up to the Pacific, and attempt to try to, to try to establish themselves in the Pacific. So um, let's begin by reviewing the Peace of Utrecht, which ended Queen ended the War of the Spanish Secession. So as we'll recall, the the real cause of the War of the Spanish Secession was this effort by Louis the Fourteenth to basically put himself on the throne of of Spain, um, and because the the previous Spanish king didn't leave a leave an heir, and so you end up with this conflict between the the Bourbons and the Habsburgs over who would rule Spain. And what eventually happened was the Bourbon monarchy was established in Spain, and I think they're still technically the the kings of Spain are still in that line, uh, even though the French uh, the French uh, Bourbon line died out in the you know, in the aftermath of the French Revolution. Not right away, because it was restored briefly after Napoleon. But that line dies out. But the, the one in Spain endured. 
Um, so that's the main solution. It's basically, it would be a bourbon line, but it'd be separate. So no, it was decided that the same person couldn't be both on the throne of Spain and the throne of, of France. It was a balance of power idea, right? Many people look at the Peace of Utrecht as a real, um, you know, a major event in the in diplomacy because it really established this balance of power principle, which would endure, um, you know, until until the 20th century in, in some forms. Um, so that's um, as for the new world, the major um, change in territory in the new world were there were gains for England, but basically um, the English gain Acadia, uh, or at least part of Acadia, not all of it. Now remember Acadia for the French, the French province of Acadia was, uh, you know, northern Maine, um, New Brunswick. Um, you know, King, uh, current day Prince Edward's Island, um, and and present day Nova Scotia. So those are the um, the different territories. Um, now, the part of the part of Maine east of the Kennebec River was was always kind of disputed land, I think, um, but. You know, the French had claims on it. So a lot of the fighting that's going to come out in the aftermath of it takes place in that area in what left what's left of French Acadia. Um, but so they lose the the Nova Scotia part, um, the, the part centered around the city of Port Royal. And they, they keep the other parts of Acadia. So Acadia gets sort of split up. Uh, Newfoundland is handed over to the English as well, as is the um, the Hudson Bay area, which is another kind of contested land. The English had some claims there going back to its early exploration. Um, but the rest of uh, the French, the New France remained, but there were significant losses there. And um, much of the rest of the book, including Montcalm and Wolfe, a lot of that deals with the fate of Acadia and the Acadians. It's a really fascinating story. It's one of the first modern ethnic cleansings was the eventual removal of the French-speaking population um, from Acadia. Um, now, the Peace of Utrecht did provide certain guarantees to the French who remained in Acadia, or remained in the part that was handed over to the English, um, including the right to continue to practice uh, Catholicism, right? You still have the, the, the ramifications of the religious wars out there and, and still religious conflicts and, and concerns about like, of course, the English were, uh, you know, the head of the Church of England was the was the king. And this, uh, well, the queen at that point, Queen Anne. And, you know, the parliament, the reason parliament went, abandoned the Stuart line after Queen Anne died, there were other Stuarts around, but she didn't have any kids, is because they were Catholics. And so only by going to the Hanoverian line, which was connected to them via, was it Henry VIII's? Henry VIII's sister or something. Uh, I, I forget that genealogy entirely, but there was a long-standing connection going back to the 17th century. Um, and they, that's why they brought them in because they were Protestants. Uh, but uh, it, it did uh, provide certain rights to the French um, there. And then, you know, of course, you're going to have French resentment over the loss of this territory, efforts to kind of make up for it, and uh, concerns over the fate of the French and then you had many French in Acadia who didn't like the peace and, and remained loyal to the French king and, and engaged in different um, 
acts of resistance. And these are all things we're going to talk about in the future. And eventually it leads to the expulsion of the, the French Acadians, um, a major, major event in modern, early modern world history. So in chapter nine of this book, Louis Louisburg and Acadia, it's kind of mostly about the aftermath of this peace in Acadia up until um, 1749. He kind of li lists the, the problems that were left by the Treaty of Utrecht as this. Um, the stating subjects of dispute were three very different in importance. First, the question of Acadia, whether the treaty gave England a vast country or only a strip of the seacoast. Next, that of the northern New England and the Abenaki Indians, many of whom French policy still left within the borders of Maine and whom both powers claimed as subjects or allies. Last and greatest was the question of whether France or England should hold the valleys of the Mississippi and the Great Lakes and with them the virtual control of the continent. This was the triple problem that tormented the northern English colonies for more than a generation till it found a solution at last in the Seven Years' War. So that's it. This is the setup for the next war, the next war is there in the incomplete piece of, of Utrecht. Um, there just wasn't a final resolution of this. Um, now, everything else kind of falls under that, whether it's the right to worship Catholicism in Acadia or, or, or issues like that, but they're all still in the, in the back, back, backdrop. And the French government did have these um, grievances with, uh, with the peace, as did the English, largely for always being unresolved, these unresolved things. Um, chapter 10 is called Sebastian Rail. Um, Sebastian Rail is important because he's, well, he was a, a Jesuit missionary and he worked along the Abenaki. So this is kind of another Acadia chapter, um, but it leads up to the, this and the next chapter, which is called Lowell's Fight, all deal with the buildup to and the, the, and the, and the, the events of Father Ryle's War, sometimes it's called Drummer's War. Essentially, this is um, battles between New England and the Abenakis. Uh, who, so this was a proxy war. This was a, an Indian war in the sense that you had the English fighting these genocidal conflicts against the Indians of, of northern New England. But it really was a proxy war with the French because the French were propping up the Abenakis, encouraging them to... Uh, to help them win back uh, some of what they lost in in the Peace of Utrecht. So although Rail was a Jesuit missionary, he, he definitely was interested in, in helping the goals of New France in the New World. So um, the way Parkman describes it anyways, and I don't really know this history that much, but via his Kennebec missions, his missions among the Abenaki, he did basically instigate them to, to continue the war in this proxy fashion against the, against the, the English. And uh, the cost of this for him personally was, was he eventually was, was killed in this, this, this war. And so less than a decade after the, the end of Queen Anne's War, where so much of the fighting was in these main frontier communities, I talked about this in the last episode, you know, in just a, uh, less than 10 years after that, you got a renewal of the same type of frontier violence. And this time, the blame falling really on the Jesuits and their mission. Um, quote, the news of the fate of the Jesuit and his mission spread joy among the border settlers who saw in at the end of their troubles. In their eyes, Rail was an incendiary, setting on hordes of bloody savages to pillage and murder. While they thought him a devil, he passed in Canada for a martyred saint. He was neither the one nor the other, but a man with the qualities and faults of a man, fearless, resolute, endearing, boastful, sarcastic, often bitter and irritating, a vehement partisan, apt to see things, not as they were, but as he wished them to be, 
given to inaccuracy and exaggeration. Yet no doubt sincere in opinions and genuine in zeal, hating the English more than he loved the Indians, calling himself their friend, yet using them as instruments of worldly policy to their danger and final ruin. In, consider in considering the ascription of martyrdom, it is to be remembered that he did not die because he was an apostle of the faith, but because he was an active agent of the Canadian government. So that is uh, Parkman's analysis of this. So a missionary, yeah, but uh, according to Parkman anyways, not really uh, an agent of the French uh, government in Canada. Um, chapter 11 is called Louvwell's Fight, and this is really uh, about the frontier war that breaks out as a result of this um, and the ultimate defeat of the Abenakis. Now, what did this achieve? What did this, this war achieve? Well, it was devastating for the Abenakis. Um, to, if you look at Wikipedia here, uh, they say, as a result of the war, the Indian population declined on the Kennebec and Penobscot rivers, and Western Maine came more strongly under British control. The terms of Drummer's Treaty uh, was restated at every new major treaty conference for the next 30 years, but there were no major conflict in the area until King George's War in the 1740s. Now, it seems to me you know, unlikely that the Abenakis could have mounted any more resistance after their exhaustion in this war. Um, but, you know, it really did settle this question of were the Abenakis subjects of, of the French or, or the English, and it kind of establishes that, that the, uh, some clarity to the border between New France and, and British North America in, in Maine, kind of the, the, more or less the borders of Maine today. So, um, yeah, there's some here things about the importance of this war in American culture. Uh, Thoreau mentions it in A Week on the Concord and Merrimack River. Longfellow wrote a poem about it. So, anyways, not a war I knew too much about, but, but an important Indian war in, in New England history. So, uh, the first few chapters here, the first three really, deal with the aftermath of Queen Anne's War and the, the fate of the Abenakis, who were the French allies in the area. Um, after that, uh, we have three more chapters that move the story basically to the West. And so two of these are going to be about the Fox or the Atagamis um, near Detroit. So the Fox were a group. Now, later on, the United States would fight a war against the, the Fox. Um, the Black Hawk War was, was, was part of the broader movement of the larger Indian removal epoch in U.S. history in the 1830s. Uh, isn't that the one Lincoln fought in? I think it was. Um, but uh, this was the group that um, ends up involved in another war uh, called the Fox's War. Um, between, this is now not between the English and the, and the Indians, but between the French and the, and the Indians. Um, across the Great Lakes region, near near Detroit, and these were long. This was a long, prolonged conflict, lasting almost twenty years, um, ranging from Michigan uh, to Wisconsin, uh, across the whole Great Lakes region. And it was basically the French trying to dislodge uh, a, a hostile um, Indian polity from an area that they was central to their plan to dominate the continent by controlling the Mississippi Valley, and and they required control of the Great Lakes as well. So what Parkman says about this, again, this is all like the uncompleted aftermath of the Peace of Utrecht. Um, he writes that there's a threefold conflict for ascendancy in America. The conflict for Acadia, which is not entirely resolved yet, but closer to being resolved. The conflict for northern New England and the conflict for the Great West. So the first two he talks about um, with the, um, 
with the Sebastian Rail stuff and the um, and the Dummers War, Drummer Dummers War. Um, but the conflict of the Great West that's going to be largely a conflict between the the, the Origamis, uh, the Foxes, and and the French. Now, one of the big differences here is that the 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 British weren't really a very strong presence there. So it wasn't very different. I mean, that middle ground kind of strategy that the Iroquois and the Abenakis and others embraced, I talked about in a previous episode, that really couldn't be done quite as clearly among the Fox, who are really just confronting these more invasive um, French, this invasive French military that's trying to secure the Great Lakes entirely for the, the French-Canadian fur trade. So then we have a chapter on Louisiana um, after setting up the, the situation of the foxes near Detroit. Then we have a little chapter on the, just the overall development of Louisiana in these years, which, um, you know, I think Parkman tends to paint, even though he's really detailed and he acknowledges some differences here and there, he tends to paint New France in kind of one brush. And he thinks that's part of the weakness of New France, that you had all these very different cultures and approaches and a lot of different pol politically independent entities in British North America, while all of New France was just under the king, right? Um, so, so for instance, he writes this about Louisiana. But to the principles of absolutism and not those of the regular regulated liberty were to rule in Louisiana. The new French colony was to be a child of the crown. Cargoes of immigrants, willing or unwilling, were to be shipped by authority to the fever-stricken banks of the Mississippi, cargoes made up in part of those whose, uh, of whom fortune and their own defects had sunk to dependence, to whom labor was strange and odious, but who dreamed of gold mines and pearl fisheries, and wealth to be won in the new world and spent in the old, who wore the shackles of a paternal despotism, which they were told to regard as of divine institution, who were at the mercy of military rulers set over them by the king, in agreeing in nothing except enforcing the mandates of arbitrary power and the withering maxim that the labor of the colonists was due not to himself but to his master it remains to trace briefly the result of such conditions so he sees in louisiana the same general sin but this is a, a rather uh, useful survey covering about 50 some years of history of the really the establishment of of a permanent french, french settler base in in louisiana of course, that's going to be important for the story of the Acadians later on who get expulsed from Acadia, and, and many of them go to Louisiana to settle there. And of course, this would be the last holdout of, the, of New France uh, in a way, right? Because under Napoleon, it's returned to France, the whole Louisiana territory, uh, just long enough to be sold to the United States. And then finally, to wrap up this part of the book, we have the, the history of the Otagami War, which is the, the Fox Wars. Um, and it's a long drawn out affair. It's like 20 years described here. But the result of it is, is the near destruction of the, of the Fox population in that area. Um, quote, in, in 1763, it was reported that 60 or 80 Otagami warriors were still alive. Their women, whom when hard pushed would fight like furies, were relatively numerous and tolerably prolific, and the villages were full of sturdy boys, likely to be dangerous in a few years. Fearing their losses and their weakness, the survivors of the tribe incorporated themselves with their kindred and neighbors, the Saxes, and, forming the, and, and the two forming henceforth one tribe known to the Americans as the Sax and Foxes. 
Um, and of course, they're going to remain there um, uh, in the Mississippi, upper Mississippi Valley. Um, so that's really all I really need to say about this part of the book. Uh, really, the theme here is proxy wars and, and, and conflicts that kind of bubbled over in the aftermath of the, of the Peace of Utrecht because dominance of, of the New World was not yet decided between France and, and Great Britain. I guess we're going to use Great Britain now without any, without any uh, reservation. Um, in the next episode, I'll talk about the next 100 pages or so, which will cover uh, basically other dealings out in the far west, uh, the search for the Pacific, and, and really setting up the French position on the eve of King George's War. And then the episode after that, we'll talk about King George's War. Um, but that's it for now. Like as I said, a short episode, uh, not too much important to talk about, but I think it's it's he does a really good job here of summarizing the incomplete piece of Utrecht and the consequences of it for for the creation of of, of kind of ex, 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 extending the conflict to the devastation of different Indian Indian groups. Um, so that's going to be it for now. Um, as always, you can send me an email at hundredpagescast.gmail.com. Um, but that'll be it for now. So,